0: Servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance, and it sworn beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For, th- for that which has not been told toward- told them, they see. And they and that which they have not heard, they understand. whom men hide their faces, he was despised and was esteemed him, him, esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried out sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed out for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement ch- that, that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of, of us all. Amen.
1: Well, my name is Pastor Andrew, and I want to welcome you once more to our Good Friday service. Uh, For those of you who made the time to not only have a day off from school and maybe from any of you work, But to to choose to be together as your church family today is important. Thank you for that. And for those of you who are visiting, whether you're exploring uh, this church or whether you're visiting friends or family around the Easter season, I want to welcome you here as well. And on Good Friday, we, we often, if not always, will retell a story that is familiar to us all, the story of the betrayal and the arrest, the trial, the torture, the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. And on this Good Friday, we are going to look in particular in the account of John's gospel and focus not only in what Jesus does, but also on the words that he speaks throughout this entire story. And with that focus in mind, I've, I've entitled today's sermon, Red Letter Friday. Red letters being that shout out to the words of Jesus. And, and one of the things that John lets us know as readers of his gospel is that Jesus was always fully aware of what he was walking towards he knew what lay in front of him he knew that this was the last day of his life and so yes if any of us are in a position in which we know that our death is just right around the corner the words that we say will be specific and important and valuable and that is much the same with jesus And as we retell this important and familiar story, I believe looking at his words can also help us maybe unpack or reinforce some of the lessons that we learn. Because what Jesus said backed up what he did. It showed that what he held dear as he walked the road to his crucifixion and to his death. As we continue, I just invite you to pray with me one more time. God, as we gather and as we come before you, as we Bring ourselves to the foot of the cross. I pray that we would humble ourselves. Humble ourselves to who you are. Humble ourselves to what you have done. Humble ourselves to this, this reality that we can never be good enough. And humble ourselves to, to know that there is much that you still have to teach us through your word. And I pray from this place of humility that we would be met by you, taught by you, and encouraged and freed and healed by you. This is what we ask. And we pray it in your name. Amen. What was the story of these events on this Red Letter Friday? Well, the story begins with Jesus in the garden with his disciples. Almost all of his disciples, 11 of the 12 are there. But there's one noticeable absence, and that is Judas. Earlier during the Last Supper, Jesus had revealed that Judas was going to betray him. And after this revelation, he, he commands Judas to go and do what you need to do. And Judas earlier this day has now left out into the dark of the night. And now Jesus is with the remaining 11 disciples praying in the garden. And it's at this moment that Judas appears back on the scene. But he hasn't come alone. He hasn't come to confess and to admit that he made a mistake and to to fall upon the grace and mercy of his Lord and Savior. No, he has come with a group of armed soldiers, ready and prepared to follow through with this betrayal and to arrest Jesus. Jesus, however, is not caught by surprise. And in fact, John tells us in chapter 18, if you want to turn to your Bibles, this is where we will follow the story. And in John 18, verse 4, he says that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. None of this is a surprise. He knew Judas would betray him. He knew that he would be arrested. He knew that he would have to go step by step by step closer to the cross. And armed with this knowledge, Jesus asks to Judas and to the armed escort, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. If you seek me, let these men go. Jesus here was, was faced with a group of people who wanted to arrest him, who wanted to, to bring him to an unfair trial, to, to ultimately bring him to a place of suffering and death. And Jesus was willing to go. He, was, he chose not to put up a fight. And one of the reasons he did this was to protect his other followers. He says, if you seek me, then let these other people go. The first lesson we learned from the red letters of this event is that Jesus cares for others. He cared for his followers. The disciples were put under his care, and it was a task that he took seriously all the way until the end of his life. Facing down, unfair trial, torture, and death, Jesus revealed that he cares for others. And in so doing, he fulfilled his words that he prayed earlier in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 12. But here he reminds us, what has he done? He says in verse 9, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. The heavenly father had entrusted these disciples to the care of Jesus, and he did his part. He protected them, he taught them, he encouraged them and challenged them all the way until the end of his life. He followed through with that promise. But that is not limited just to the disciples in the garden. Jesus cared for his followers then, and he cares for his followers now. And I can't help but wonder, if we were armed with the same foreknowledge of Jesus— if we were put in a place in which we knew we had 24 hours or less to live, would we spend our time thinking so much about other people? Because when faced with that type of mortality, it is human nature to become inwardly focused, to think about yourself and take, to take stock of your life and to, and to have others come and support you. And that's all well and good. But here we have Jesus in that very same situation, showing his love and care and compassion for other people. And, and again, that, that, that glimpse that we get of Jesus' care for his disciples is only a part of the puzzle, because as we continue to read this story, we know that the very reason Jesus is willing to walk this path is out of his care for you. He's not just protecting his disciples physically. He cares for all. That is why he went to the cross, a truly selfless Jesus went through it all for you and me. He cares, and he cares about his disciples even after Peter makes everything worse. <laughs> in verse 11, Peter doesn't want Jesus to go willingly, so he takes out his sword and he cuts off a servant's ear. And then yet again, Jesus steps into the gap to protect others. And he says to Peter in verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus says, enough. You do not need to defend me. I go willingly. Why? Because I care for you. And so Peter, probably sheepishly, maybe unwillingly, puts that sword away. And Jesus is taken and arrested by the soldiers. And he's brought before the high priest. Brought before the, the religious elite of the Jews. And he's questioned. Questioned about his disciples. And most importantly, he's questioned about the nature of his teaching of what he said, and that's really the reason why Jesus is here. He is is teaching things that are, are threatening those who are the religious elite. He is challenging them. He's making waves. He's making life uncomfortable. And it's interesting, facing these questions about his teaching, what Jesus says next in John 18 in verse 20. Jesus answered the high priest, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews came together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them; they know what I said. It's really interesting. What what an odd response. Well, Jesus is actually challenging the high priest in two different ways. Number one, he is saying you already know the answer to this question. You're not actually looking for new information. This isn't a trial that's trying to decide whether I'm guilty or innocent. You've already made up your mind. You know what I've taught because I've taught it in in the open. Why do you ask me that? And the second thing Jesus is saying is he's calling into question the legitimacy of this trial. He's saying, don't ask me. Ask the many witnesses who heard what I have taught. Normal practice for a Jewish trial in those days would have been to go to witnesses first to ask their story, to get information from them before you would ask someone to defend themselves. So the response of Jesus is to challenge the high priest saying, why are you asking me a question that you already know the answer to? And why are you not going about this trial in the right way? He is questioning the legitimacy of the trial and he's questioning the integrity of the high priest. (laughs) the the most high-ranking religious leader in Israel, which is why in response, someone backhands him across the face and strikes Jesus. Is that how you answer the high priest? (laughs) And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Why do you strike me? Through these words, Jesus shows his care for justice. He cares for justice. And unfortunately, this trial was anything of the sort. It was a sham. It was a mockery. It was an excuse to get rid of someone, an influential leader and teacher, who was making the religious elite and their lives miserable, undermining their authority, threatening their peaceable relationship with Rome. Jesus had to go. And this trial was anything but just. And Jesus has proven his point. But that's not the only way that Jesus cares for justice. His desire goes deeper. Just as Jesus was willing to walk to the cross because of his care for others, he was willing to endure this unfair trial and even his execution in order to bring about God's true justice. He cared about it deeply it motivated him. He humbled himself, obedient to God's justice all the way until the cross. He died so that all sin Could be paid for. And on that cross, God's wrath was poured out and justice was done once and for all. Yet on that cross, Jesus also died so that we could be free from the penalty of sin that we so rightfully deserve. And on the cross, not only was God's justice poured out, but we find grace and mercy in equal measure. Jesus took it all upon himself. He cared for justice and he cared for others, and both were expressed perfectly. On the cross, so that we may be forgiven. Jesus cares for others. He cares for justice. Now, the high priest is is done with his sham of a trial, but they can't do what they want to do to Jesus on their own. They have to bring him to the Roman authorities, and so Jesus is brought before the Roman governor of Judea, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. And Pilate doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He doesn't want anything to do with this controversial figure. And so he wants to give him back to the Jews just to punish them according to their own laws. But the, uh, the, the fact is that the religious leaders want him dead. And to execute someone was a penalty that only the Roman authorities could meter out. And so they refuse to take Jesus back. They say, no, you must deal with him. So Pilate takes Jesus into his headquarters and asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? The reason this is the question that's asked is because it is the charge that has been laid at the feet of Jesus by the Jews. I mean, Rome won't execute Jesus for just uh, blasphemy, breaking a Jewish law. He has to break a Roman law. And so if they can convince Rome that Jesus is is claiming to be king of the Jews, well, then, then now he is, that's treason. He's now usurping the throne. He's he's now challenging Caesar himself. That is a charge that could lead to his execution. That's the charge that's been brought to Pilate. And he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And yet again, Jesus exposes the unfairness of this charge in John 18.34. He answered Pilate, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? (laughs) Is this just what they've said about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? It's kind of confused here. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? Are you the king of the Jews? Well, Jesus, in his roundabout way, answers this question with a resounding yes. He is a king. In fact, he is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Just not in the way that anyone expects. He's not a king in a way that would threaten Rome or Caesar. He's not a king in in, in a way that would have his disciples defend his messianic kingship so he could fight against Rome. He's not a king of a kingdom of this world. It's far, far different It's far, far greater. And more than anything, this conversation between Jesus and Pilate shows that Christ cares for the truth because his kingdom is true. It's different, but it's true. The kingdom of God is supernatural, not natural. It's unseen, not seen, but it is true and real and greater in every way that matters. If you want true life, It's available in the kingdom of God. If you want to experience true love, the kingdom of God. If you want to experience true fulfillment, it's found in the kingdom of God. We may not touch it and see it and feel it, but it is true. It is the truth. In fact, Jesus has come into the world to bear witness to the truth. John has declared in his gospel that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we gathered here months ago to celebrate the birth of Jesus, we celebrated this fact. That that was the beginning of his purpose and his mission to point people to the true kingdom that matters most. And everyone who is of the truth now listens to his voice. And he gives Pilate an invitation. And as readers of the word, he gives us an invitation beside Pilate. We have heard and read and seen the red letters, the words of Jesus. We have heard his voice. Do you believe the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of kings? Do you believe the truth that his death paved the way for you to be with God in right relationship with him now and forevermore? Or do you find yourself lost, doubting, and skeptical like Pilate, who just mutters out of frustration, what is truth when the truth is standing right in front of him? Jesus cares for others. He cares for justice. He cares for truth. And while Pilate may not have been convinced about Jesus' claim of truth, he's also not convinced that this man is guilty of anything. So again, he tries to placate the Jewish masses and to to release Jesus. And before he does that, he offers the people. You can either have Jesus back or you can have Barabbas, this robber, this known criminal, a person who's clearly of ill repute, someone that we know is guilty and they choose to take Barabbas. And so Pilate takes this, this whole thing a step further, and he, he says, okay, well, we are going to punish Jesus, and we're going to mock him. And so, so they, they whip him, and they flog him, and they torture him, and his back is torn and bleeding. And then they make a crown of thorns and press it down on his brow and give him a robe of purple, all to mock this claim that he could somehow be a king. Jesus is hurt and tortured, mocked and ridiculed, Proof beyond all measure that that this man couldn't possibly be a threat to Rome. He couldn't possibly be king of the Jews. Look how weak he is. And is that enough? It's not enough because those voices cry out, those cruel words, crucify him, crucify him. And then the Jews and the leaders finally describe the reason Jesus needed to die. He has claimed to be the son of God. It's not just that he said he's the king. He has claimed to be divine. Interestingly enough, it is at this, not the kingship claim, but this claim of divinity that frightens Pilate, that makes him take this all a lot more seriously. And he brings Jesus aside and asks him, Who are you really? Where are you from? He wants to know the truth. And when Jesus is silent, Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him in John 19, 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus isn't worried about Pilate. Jesus not only knows what's happening, he knows that there's a greater plan and purpose at work. It looks like Pilate, Pilate, he's not a pirate, he's Pilate. He's not a pilot either, you know what I mean. It looks like Pilate has the final authority, but he doesn't. Every earthly authority given to him has been given to him by God the Father. And Jesus knows this, and he finds peace in this, and he goes obedient knowing that there is one who's on the throne, there is one who's sovereign and in control, and he is doing his will. And it doesn't matter what Pilate can or can't do. He's obedient to the will of the Father. Pilate finally relents to the will of the people. And they take Jesus out to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And they crucify him. Jesus is nailed to the cross through his hands and his feet. His back already torn and bloodied from the whip. His brow already torn and bloodied from the crown of thorns. And they lift him up to hang and to die on that cross, flanked by criminals. Pilate also inscribed a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Perhaps one last cruel mockery of this claim of kingship. How can he be a king if he's dying? The Jews still don't like it. They say, no, no, you need to change the sign. It needs to read, here's the one who claimed to be King of the Jews. And Pilate perhaps maybe a bit convinced about who Jesus is through all his conversations, says, hey, what I've written, I have written. And it may have been meant to be cruel. It may have been designed to be a mockery, but that sign was true. And as Jesus hung on the cross, abandoned by his followers, unfairly condemned to death by those who just hated him, soldiers gathered around the foot of the cross and took Jesus' garments and cast lots for his clothing and his tunic, one of many ways in which scripture was fulfilled. And near the end, hanging in agony on the cross, in the process of dying, Jesus musters up the chance to look after others one more time. He looks after his mother. Some of his last words on the cross were designed to, again, care for others. In John nineteen twenty six, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman. Behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From all evidence that we have, Jesus' earthly father Joseph had passed away a number of years before, leaving him as the eldest son, this task and responsibility of looking after his widowed mother, and now that he is about to breathe his last breath, he again, at that moment, does not turn inward, but again reinforces his love and care for others. And he, he cares for his mom. He puts those affairs in order and says, now, look after her. Look after her, please. Would we be that selfless in that position? And then at the very end, with only five words left to go, we see Jesus show his commitment to the mission that he was given. Jesus cares for his mission. As he was about to breathe his last, he says simply, I thirst. And this wasn't just because Jesus was thirsty. This in fact shows his complete obedience to the mission at hand because this is also a fulfillment of scripture, likely a fulfillment of Psalm 69, picking up in verse 20, where David prophetically says, Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my, th- my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So Jesus says, I thirst, and they bring him sour wine to drink showing that right up until the end, he knows he is fulfilling Scripture. He knows he is accomplishing God's will. He knows he is obedient to his mission to save everyone from their sins right until the end. Jesus was always aware in the garden, before Pilate, and on the cross. And finally, finally, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Full of his care for others, his care for justice, for truth, and for his mission, Jesus died. And so this morning we remember not only the death, but the love and the care behind that sacrifice. One of the best ways that Jesus himself left for us to remember is through communion. We are going to take communion together today. So we're going to ask, we're going to have a member of the Spiritual Life and Care team come and just stand beside each uh, of these tables that you'll see at the front. There's going to be a song that we'll play as well. What I'd encourage you to do uh, after I pray here is to stand and to come forward, to take the elements and to bring them back to your seat and to reflect on the cross to reflect on not just the actions, but the words and the heart of Christ behind the cross and what it means to you. And then once we have all had a chance to receive the elements and to come back to our seat, then I will come and we will um, take of the elements together at that time. I'll lead us through that at the end. But let us remember today of all days the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done and why you have done it. How could you care so much for us, for all of us? I have to confess that often I don't understand, but I believe. And the things most worth believing are the things that are the hardest to understand. I thank you for your care and your obedience and your willingness to love us enough to die on the cross. As we take the communion together in just a minute's time, God, I pray that we would be reminded of this, this in full measure. Amen. Now the words of Jesus have been read, but the story is not quite yet over. <clears throat> After he had breathed his last breath, Jewish leaders were adamant that the, the bodies on the cross should, should, be, should be taken down before the Sabbath. This was a, a Friday, the day of preparation, and Sabbath was the next day. In order to make sure that the, these criminals, those who were executed and crucified, who would die in time, they went to break the legs of those who had not yet passed away. And they break the legs of the criminals, and when they get to Jesus, they find that he is already dead. And they do not break his bones, which fulfills Scripture that none of the Messiah's bones would be broken. Yet there is one of the soldiers who presumably wants to ensure that Jesus is truly dead, that there's no faking it. And he pierces him in the side with a spear and blood and water flow out. Once again, fulfilling scripture that the Messiah would be pierced. As the bodies are taken down off the cross, we are introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, a secret follower of Jesus who goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Christ. And along with Nicodemus, yes, that Nicodemus, they prepare Jesus' body for burial. They wrap it in linen cloths and they embalm it with spices. All would have been normal burial practices for Jews in that day. Joseph of Arimathea, likely a rich man, had a brand new tomb that had never been used before, carved into the rock, and they laid Jesus down. And in front of that rock, there was a huge stone that was rolled into place. Sealed so that no one could go in, desecrate the body, or steal the body. And our story today ends when that stone is rolled into place. Because on Friday, the tomb is full. The tomb is full. I think that idea of fullness is quite important to the story. In fact, there are two days in which we gather, not often on Sundays, to to celebrate something vastly, vastly important. On Christmas Eve and on Good Friday, we gather together. And in both of these ways, we we remember the fullness. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ, and we know from Scripture that that He was the, the fullness of God dwelling among us. We celebrate that. And on Good Friday, as we've gathered today, we remember the cross and we remember that on Christ, the fullness of sin and shame hung on that cross with him. The fullness of the sins of the world. The Apostle John, who wrote this gospel later, explains it this way in the first letter bearing his name, 1 John 2, verse 2. He says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is a great theological word. It's one that I tried to put in all my, my seminary papers as much as I could. to sound smart. What does it mean? It means he is the satisfaction. He, is, he, he took on the, the penalty of sin and shame. He experienced the consequences of it. God poured out his justice on him so that, so that we wouldn't have to, so we could be in right relationship with God. He has paid it all, not just us but for all the sins of the whole world. Church, I can't even begin to imagine the immensity of that statement. Just thinking for a minute about the sin and the shame that I deal with in my life and how that would just be be true of all of us in this this, uh, chapel here today and all of us in Steinbeck and in Canada and around the world and then to to multiply that across all of human history, past, present, and future. That is, is the fullness of what weighed on Jesus on the cross. All of it. And more than just being immense, the fullness of sin that Jesus took on the cross is is very, very personal. He didn't just take the sin of the world. He took your sin. He took your shame. He took your brokenness on the cross and he healed you. We read this in 1 Peter. I think this is is a more mature Peter after he's put away his ear-cutting sword, and he's learned a lot more about who Jesus is and what he has done. He says this to the early church in 1 Peter 2, 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds you have been healed. That's the truth. You have been healed. And church, I don't know. I do not know what sin that you are bringing with you here, the sin that, that you just can't seem to get over, the one that causes you to, to fall and to stumble over and over again. And I say, Jesus took that on the cross and he paid it in full. And I don't know what shame you're carrying with this, this thing that happened long ago that you're shameful for and you just can't seem to feel forgiven. And the cross declares the truth that through the blood of Christ you are healed. And I don't know how you experience the brokenness of this world as the sin and shame of others impact our lives and break our relationships. But I do know the truth that through the cross of Christ, that has been paid in full. It's paid in full. You see, when Jesus said it is finished, he didn't mean his life was at an end. He wasn't thinking chronologically. He didn't say, it is finished because I've lived until now and now it's done. He didn't even mean, I've walked this road and now the road is at an end. When Jesus breathed his last breath, with his last three words, he says, it is complete. It is done. It's accomplished. It is finished in full. And so we don't have to carry that shame. We don't have to live in that sin. We don't have to. Live in that brokenness. It is done. It is complete. It is finished. And we remember the cost. And we remember the freedom and the healing that we have in it. Because on Good Friday, the tomb is full.
2: He was beaten down and punished, and he didn't say a word. He was like a lamb being led to be killed. He was quiet as a sheep is quiet while its wool is being cut. He never opened his mouth. Men took him away roughly and unfairly. He died without children to continue his family. He was put to death. He was punished for the sins of my people. He was buried with wicked men, and he died with the rich. He had done nothing wrong, and he had never lied. But it was the Lord who decided to crush him and make him suffer, The Lord made his life a penalty offering, but he will still see his descendants and live a long life. He will complete the things the Lord wants him to do. After his soul suffers many things, he will see life and be satisfied. My good servant will make many people right with God. He will carry away their sins. For this reason, I will make him a great man among people, and he will share in all things with those who are strong. He willingly gave his life and was treated like a criminal, but he carried away the sins of many people and asked forgiveness for those who sinned.
1: It is good to remember together and to declare together that Jesus is worthy. And while we leave here today, remembering that on Friday the tomb is full, good news is coming. We'll see you on Sunday.